Hello, and thank you for joining us today for this podcast, examining the anatomy of a successful motion to dismiss claims brought under the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, more commonly known as RICO. I'm Cal Stein, a partner in Troutman Pepper's Health Sciences Department and White Collar and Government Investigations Group. I'm joined today by my colleague and friend, Matt Adler, a partner in our business litigation department. Matt, how are you today? Cal, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for asking me to join. Oh, thank you. Um, So, Matt, we're here today to talk about a case that we've worked on together uh, where our clients faced significant civil RICO claims in federal court. And uh, as you know, we we twice moved to dismiss the RICO claims, and twice we were successful in winning dismissal of virtually all of them, those in the original complaint and then those repled in the amended complaint. And winning dismissals of RICO claims like this is not something that happens all that frequently. So we are here today to talk about the case and the dismissals but mostly to talk about our strategy and attacking the claims, how those strategies were ultimately successful, and then to talk about some lessons from our success here that may apply to other RICO cases in the future. And that's where we get the title of this podcast, The Anatomy of a Successful Motion to Dismiss RICO Claims. So with that context, I do think we should start by orienting everyone to the facts and the procedural posture of the case. Matt, since you've been involved with this case from the beginning, you want to give us a little overview? I'd be happy to. And the case does have a fairly interesting and layered history. The origins of the case came about because a lobster union in Maine, of course, if we're talking Maine, we have to be talking lobster, decided that the lobster men, the folks who actually pull the lobsters out of those cool traps that you see when you're vacationing in Maine, did not have enough control over lobster prices. They were selling, but they weren't buying. And they got the idea that it would be good to buy a part of the wholesale business that instead of only pulling lobsters out of traps, they could also be the sellers as you sell further up the chain and have lobsters in restaurants or roadside stands or whatever. And they decided that the best way to do that, the best way to penetrate the wholesale lobster market was to buy an existing wholesale lobstering business. And so they did just that. They brought a family by the Pettigrew family that had been in business in that part of Maine for 40 years. And they realized what they didn't know and that they, the lobster union, did not have direct wholesale experience. And so they came up with the novel idea that the oldest son of the Pettigrew family, named Warren Pettigrew, would become the CEO of the new lobster union wholesale business. That was the plan on paper. And as is so often the case with startups, it didn't work out too well. The business did not make as much money as anybody anticipated, and the lawyers got called in. The lobster union brought a complaint that I know we're going to talk about and alleged all kinds of things. But it had its origins in a union wanting to penetrate a new market and hiring the son of the selling business. So let's talk about those claims, and let's talk about the RICO claim itself that the union ultimately brought. 
And for those listeners who may not be familiar with RICO, very briefly, it's a federal criminal and civil statute that was enacted back in 1970 to help federal prosecutors combat organized crime. But since then, it's been used time and again by civil plaintiffs in all manner of disputes that arise, including the type that Matt just described. The civil part of the RICO statute, which is what we're talking about here today, basically permits private parties to sue other private parties that constitute what's called a RICO enterprise if they are alleged to have engaged in a, quote, pattern of racketeering activity which basically means the commission of multiple specific criminal offenses that are enumerated in the RICO statute. That's what's known as racketeering acts. In our case, the union, the plaintiff, claimed that the RICO enterprise was comprised of our clients, the business that sold them the lobster business, um, the individual owners, and then a related business. In the initial complaint, the plaintiff focused its uh, RICO claim on the allegations that they were embezzling money from a labor union in violation of a federal statute. It also included some limited allegations of wire fraud. We initially moved to dismiss those RICO charges and we won dismissal of all the, the acts based on the theory of union embezzlement. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, and as a result of that victory, what happened was uh, many months later, the plaintiff amended their complaint and repleted the RICO count, again alleging embezzlement from a union, but this time adding many more allegations of wire fraud and adding a new theory altogether based on money laundering. This repleted RICO claim led us to file a second motion to dismiss, which we're also going to talk about in more detail. But before we get to that, Matt, let's talk a little bit about RICO and why it was so important to us and to our clients to get those claims dismissed that we would take two shots at it. So, Matt, why is it so important, not just in this case, but really in any case where there's a civil RICO claim, to attack it, if you can, at the motion to dismiss stage? Well, the short answer can be found in two words, money and exposure. Uh, to take a, a broader step back, I do commercial contract litigation. I'm used to arguing about whether a party did or did not breach a contract, like the sale of the business when the Pettigrew family sold their wholesale business to the Lobster Union. What plaintiffs are always interested in doing, RICO or not, is raising the risks and raising the exposure that the defendant has in any case so that they could force an earlier settlement, so that they can recover more money if they're successful. And the way plaintiffs my entire career have been doing that is to try to add claims besides just contract claims. I usually find that in my practice in the context of fraud claims, because fraud has the extra element of punitive damages on top of contract damages. And so what do you do with the fraud claim? You move to dismiss that. RICO is a fraud claim on steroids, for those of you listening, because it is triple damages. So all of a sudden, the sort of terror that a plaintiff can wave over defendants is not just they'll lose the lawsuit, but if they lose the lawsuit, they'll pay $3 for every dollar of damage the plaintiff alleges. And that is why good defense lawyers try to narrow down and throw out the riskier, more high-dollar claims as early in the case as possible. 
And so when faced with a RICO claim, as we were here, twice, as Cal says, one moves to dismissing money and exposure. So let's talk about our strategy for, for those dismissals. And let's go back to the beginning. Really, when you're moving to dismiss a RICO claim, there are kind of two broad approaches that you can typically take. One is to attack the RICO elements, whether there was an enterprise, whether there was a pattern of racketeering activity, things that appear in the RICO statute. The other approach is to attack the underlying predicate acts. Here, it was union embezzlement and wire fraud to start with, and then later money laundering. We ultimately chose to use the latter approach. And in the original RICO claim, it was pretty straightforward. The plaintiff was relying on a statute uh, that talked about embezzling from labor unions. And our belief and our argument was they were not, in fact, a labor union. Very straightforward. And we were successful. The judge agreed. In the second motion to dismiss, the, the one to dismiss the amended RICO claim, it was a little bit tougher because we, it had the original claim about union embezzlement, but it had far greater wire fraud allegations as well as money laundering. And wire fraud in particular posed some challenges because typically wire fraud allegations are traditionally easier to plead and harder to get dismissed than something like the labor union embezzlement theory, which relied on a more specific federal statute. Nonetheless, we really still wanted to attack the RICO claim, so we had to come up with some new arguments. And, well, actually, the first argument was the same one uh, regarding the union embezzlement theory. We continued to argue it wasn't a union and that the uh, plaintiff had not cured that. For the wire fraud claims, we had to attack the underlying element, and we chose the element that they never pled the content of the wire communications. We argued that the plaintiff had just pleaded that certain telephone calls and wire communications had occurred between and among our clients close in time to the transactions that the plaintiffs claimed were fraudulent. As for money laundering, we argued essentially that there was no concealment of the source of the funds in question, which is the crux of a money laundering claim. And again, we had success. The judge agreed with our arguments and dismissed virtually all of the RICO claims. So we're going to talk a lot more about our strategy and why we made the arguments that we did. But first, let's talk about some of the challenges that we faced. Matt, as you know, as a commercial litigator, motions to dismiss are difficult to begin with, and RICO motions to dismiss are often even harder. Can you talk a little bit about what makes winning a motion to dismiss like this so hard? Well, the first thing that makes winning a motion to dismiss so hard is that courts are told not to grant motions to dismiss. It's really that simple, and I'm exaggerating only a tad. The classic federal law that one sees repeated all the time in the cases is that the district court, the trial-level court with whom the motion to dismiss is filed, should strain, should strain to find a cause of action. In other words, should try to not grant the motion to dismiss. We're, we're in a society that is litigious, and the view is, by most courts, if the defendant has that great a case, go through discovery, go through the trial, but you're asking me to throw out this case pretty early on day one counsel, and I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get reversed. 
So you start with a, a disposition against deciding any motion to dismiss. When you then go to the motion to dismiss a RICO claim, you're dealing not only with that judicial attitude and concern about being reversed, but also with the fact that sophisticated plaintiffs, and we had a sophisticated plaintiff here, know how to recite the magic words in a RICO complaint, exactly as you just talked about, Cal, enterprise liability, things like that. And so very often it's the case where if a court does a checklist and looks at the magic words and if they're there or not, at that point just say, okay, hands off, let's establish a six-month discovery period. If you folks like bringing a motion for summary judgment, we'll see you then. Have a very nice day. And so to answer your question, that's always the attitude that we're dealing with. And so you have to be precise and laser-like in attacking it from there. And luckily, you were the guy doing that. Well, well thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. And I agree. You, you, you raise really good points about how courts are hesitant right off the bat to, to grant motions to dismiss in the first place. And I think when we were talking about the motion to dismiss here, we were not only cognizant of that, but we really decided consciously to take those challenges on head on. And the way we did that, I, I would suggest, is that we focused on what made this case, this particular case, ripe for the granting of a motion to dismiss. And to explain why here, the court should not give in to those temptations that it normally has to, as you noted, strain to find a claim and strain to not dismiss the case. And I want to talk about uh, a couple of those strategies. The first one was one very near and dear to your heart, Matt, I know, and it was to focus on the fact that by the time the plaintiff brought its amended complaint, we were already several years into the case and discovery was well underway. This was not a case like the typical where you just mentioned, Matt, that the motion to dismiss is coming on day one of the case and the, the court wants to wait and see what is uncovered during discovery. Here, by the time the plaintiff brought its amended complaint, they had already had an opportunity to conduct discovery. They had made document requests. They had deposed our clients. Our position was that, look, Judge, at this point, they ought to be able to plead their RICO claim with detail. And even though we were still dealing with the same familiar motion to dismiss standard that we all know and love, we were able to highlight for the court that though the standard is the same, the plaintiff's inability to plead each element directly was different. They had already asked for and received all the documents that would show, for example, the wire fraud or the money laundering they were alleging, and they'd already deposed the individuals accused of committing those acts. We made the point to the court that if the plaintiff did not have the evidence it needed to plead those claims now, the court could rest assured that it would never get that evidence. And Matt, this idea that all motions to dismiss are not created equally and, and bare allegations are not deserving of the same level of deference when they come late in the case after discovery, as opposed to at the beginning of the case when no discovery has been taken, was something that you predicted would be particularly powerful to the judge when we were preparing this motion. Turns out you were right. 
what what is it about this argument that really resonated with you? Well, I thought that we had to stare into the belly of the beast. I thought that we had to confront the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that motions to dismiss are generally given great deference. But I wanted to remind the court that that's because motions to dismiss are, as mentioned earlier, usually filed at the very beginning of the case before there's an opportunity to take discovery. And so what I wanted to remind the court is that that's the wrong standard to hold our opponents to now. They are smarter. We had had months and months of depositions and document requests. And so what we were trying to explain to the court is that the usual deference doesn't apply. Now, you're being very kind by saying I was right and it turned out to be the right strategy. And we happen to have been fortunate in the result. It was always in the back of my mind that it could very easily have worked out just the other way because as a direct result, of all those months of discovery and all of those depositions. In fact, the amended complaint did have more detail. It had more detail because the plaintiff was in possession of that information that it gained in the discovery process. And a different judge might have looked at all of that detail and said, well, they in fact have cured the problems that I found in my first dismissal order. But because of the way we crafted it, and we lined up precisely what they failed to show the second time with what the judge said was absent the first time, we were able to use the stage of the case against our opponents. That doesn't always happen. You don't always have the procedural option to do that. But here, because the scheduling order allowed for amendments to be heard well into the discovery period, we had two parallel tracks going the discovery track, the motion to dismiss track, and we brought those tracks together at the right time for our client. And you raise a really good point, Matt, that this was a little bit of a unique situation where the amendment came so late in the game. That's not going to happen in every case. But do you think that what we saw here on the, the late filed motion to dismiss after discovery, do you think there's anything in that that's transferable to the summary judgment context, which of course does typically take place after discovery. Yes, I think there's a great deal that's transferable. And in fact, that might actually be going forward the lesson that I use most in my practice. To rewind to what I said a moment ago, we happen to have had a scheduling order here in which three things happened. First, the court ruled on the motion to dismiss, the initial one. Second, the court allowed discovery to go forward. And third, the court did allow plaintiffs to try for a redo and replead their complaint. That's not always going to happen. You might more often have the situation that many of our listeners are used to. You have the pleading filed. You have a motion to dismiss filed. As we said earlier, we'll usually try to dismiss a RICO claim. And then if you lose that, you're going to go forward in the discovery period. Well, what happens at the end of that discovery period? without repleting. What happens is you then get to not a Rule 12 motion to dismiss, but a Rule 56 motion for summary judgment. And that's my answer to your question, Cal. I think that you can and should go back and look at what you as a defendant thought was absent from the RICO pleading on day one. And now that you're at day 101 or day 181 or day 281, 
and you don't want discovery, you can say to the court, okay, Your Honor, I might not have persuaded you on a pleading standard, but now look at the evidence here. Look at everything that's come in. Now it's exclusive. Now there's no deference whatsoever. And you know what, Judge? They still can't check the boxes. So that which you did not give to me on a Rule 12 motion, Your Honor, please now give to me on a motion for summary judgment. And I'm going to bear that very much in mind, Cal, as we go forward and have any of these future cases. If at first you don't succeed, try, try a summary judgment again. It's a great point and one that we've talked about a lot and certainly one that's going to stick with me as well. The persistence idea uh, can really be effective. Um, I want to talk next about the next way that we tried to convey to the judge that this case is different and that some uh, motion to dismiss is appropriate here. And that was by doing something that seems pretty obvious, but was really effective here, which was focusing on the law of the case that existed already. And uh, as we know, by the time we brought up the motion to dismiss the amended RICO claim, the judge had already once before dismissed their theory on the union embezzlement grounds. The judge had ruled that the plaintiff was not a labor union. It really was that simple. And the key point on which the judge relied in making that earlier ruling was that the plaintiff, despite all the things that it claimed it did do, did not do the main thing that labor unions do, which is negotiate with employers on behalf of its members. Here, the members were independent fishermen. They didn't have employers, and the plaintiff certainly didn't negotiate or advocate for its members on their behalf in terms of employment. It, it just was not a labor union. In the amended complaint, though, the plaintiff did make some new factual allegations that it tried to make itself look more like a union, but what it couldn't do and what it didn't do is address the key finding that the court made in its original decision. So when we brought the motion to dismiss again, we had very solid legal grounds on which the judge had already agreed with us. But instead of just repeating our arguments, I think we did something that was really effective. And we talked a lot about this. We actually used the new factual allegations that the plaintiff had made, none of which addressed the reason for the earlier dismissal, to highlight why the amended pleading was still, still deficient. Our argument was essentially, look, judge, plaintiff couldn't plead it was a labor union before. The court explained very clearly why its pleading was deficient in this matter. And even when given a second chance to correct that deficiency, the plaintiff adds all these other facts, but it doesn't add anything that actually addresses the core deficiency. And that is because there are no facts that to plead that would show that it actually negotiated with employers. So, Matt, this was an argument that legally we felt really good about, and we had confidence that the judge would dismiss the racketeering acts again. But beyond that, we also talked about how we might be able to use this argument to highlight other deficiencies in the plaintiff's RICO claim. And that was one reason we put this argument right up at the front of our brief. Do you think that using this argument again and being able to rely on the law of the case helped us get the ultimate dismissal on some of the other claims as well? I, I do. One never knows the counterfactuals. So had they not elected to stay stubbornly with that 
labor organization argument, would we have won anyway? I'd like to think so, Uh, but it certainly helped us. I couldn't help but chuckle when you said earlier about the main things that unions do. Those of us who are fortunate enough to live in Maine, which I do for about half the year, play around all the time with the main thing, and you see storefronts use those words all the time. Here, as you're right, the main thing that unions do, whether or not you end it with an E or an N, the word main, is negotiate with employers. And I was somewhat surprised that our opponents dug in on that. Our opponents are outstanding lawyers, uh, but every litigant makes a choice. And sometimes it's not always the best thing to fight every battle. This was one that they could have let go because there were no facts in the world that were going to be discovered that altered the fundamental fact that this plaintiff entity did not negotiate collective bargaining agreements with an employer. What we were able to do, Cal, as you pointed out, is to say to the judge, I'm so glad they brought this argument up again. We've all learned so much in discovery. We've learned so much about the lobster business. We've learned so much about this deal and why the union wanted to own a piece of the wholesale business. And now that we've learned all this, we're delighted to tell you, Your Honor, just how correct you were the first time. Because what you thought is now indisputably the truth. And sure, that's a great way to open up any motion to dismiss, to remind the court of its wisdom, and that allowed us to set the story and set the theme of, let us tell you all that we have learned. Because again, once we told the court all that we have learned, we were then able to go on and address the allegations of wire fraud that we discussed earlier. So thematically, I thought, quite frankly, we caught a break and we ran with it. Yeah, and who doesn't love learning that their original decision not only was correct at the time, but was still correct uh, almost two years later. I'm glad you mentioned- Even more so. That's right, that's right. I'm glad you mentioned wire fraud because that's the next thing I wanna talk about. And Matt, you'll recall talking about this. We knew going into the motion to dismiss that dismissing the wire fraud racketeering acts was going to be the most challenging, they were gonna be the most challenging claims because wire fraud's elements are really susceptible to pretty straightforward pleading and courts just don't like dismissing them. We knew we had the discovery argument that we talked about earlier and we did highlight that, but we also knew we needed more to actually win dismissal of those claims. So what we did was we focused on the specific elements of the federal crime of wire fraud. And, And just by way of a little bit of background, Wire fraud is a specific federal crime, meaning there is a federal criminal statute that makes it, makes committing it a, a crime. And violating the federal wire fraud statute qualifies as a racketeering act under RICO. But as you've heard me say many, many times, Matt, committing common law fraud does not qualify as a racketeering act under RICO. The complaint in this case sounded in fraud. There's no question about that. The plaintiff used that word over and over and over again. But we believed ultimately that it did not sound in wire fraud. And we felt that our best chance was to focus the court's attention on the element that differentiates common law fraud from wire fraud, namely the use of the wires. 
And that's where we got the idea to argue that plaintiff had never, despite having lots and lots of discovery, that they had never pleaded the contents of the wire communications, which of course was necessary to a claim of wire fraud, though perhaps not necessary to plead common law fraud. And Matt, I remember talking about this distinction between wire fraud and, and common law fraud. And, you know, it, it seemed and it kind of still seems like a small distinction. And, and it is. Um, but it was really critical for the, the RICO claim because RICO only embraces wire fraud as racketeering activity. Common law fraud doesn't count. So how important do you think this was to getting the wire fraud racketeering acts dismissed here? And do, do you think that small kind of technical distinctions like that. Personally, I don't think that those are usually arguments that are successful, but but it was here. So what do you think about that? Well, first of all, to answer your question directly, the distinction between fraud and wire fraud was absolutely critical and dispositive to the decision, because here we do know the counterfactual. We moved to dismiss the fraud claims, the naked state common law fraud claims, on day one. And we were not successful in dismissing those. The court rejected an argument that I have used successfully in a lot of other cases, the so-called GIST, G-I-S-T, of the action doctrine, in which some courts will be sympathetic to the argument that, judge, come on. The gist of this action, the central crux of this action, is a contract. There's no fraud here. If there's fraud here, then every breach of contract is a fraud, Your Honor. I've said that a lot of times, and I've gotten a lot of fraud claims dismissed for that. This judge would hear none of that. He said the gist of action doctrine is not very well developed in Maine. He was not going to apply it there. So to take it back to your question, if the fraud claims survived, which they did, and the RICO claims did not survive, which they did not, and RICO has an element of fraud, which, as you have just said, it does, then why the difference? And the difference is the presence in the RICO statute with its magic words and special requirements of the wire fraud element. And I will do a commercial right here for those of my colleagues in the bar listening to this podcast and who, like me, practice commercial contract litigation and business dispute litigation, but do not necessarily practice RICO as a significant component of their uh, practice and counseling to their clients, this is where you should reach out to a specialist. This is where I was very fortunate to have Cal available, because quite frankly, I'm not sure that a commercial contract generalist, even one as experienced as me, and I've been doing this for over 30 years, is going to have the familiarity with each and every nook and cranny of the RICO statute. And it was the nooks and crannies that won this for us here. You're very kind to say that, Matt. I appreciate it. Um, let, let, let's talk Let's talk lastly about the, the last kind of bucket of claims they had under RICO, which were the money laundering uh, theory. And that was a new one that uh, came about in the, for the first time in the amended complaint. And what I when I think back about this, what what kind of strikes me about our money laundering arguments was that we kind of went the exact opposite with money laundering and in terms of attacking money laundering that we did for uh, the wire fraud. 
rather than focusing on the technical legal elements of money fraud, money laundering, like we did for wire fraud, we took a broader approach and we focused on what money laundering is. What is the gravamon of a money laundering claim and why it wasn't present here? And I remember, Matt, you and I having this conversation. I remember I was standing in my office looking out the window um, and, and you kind of came up with this idea that, well, what is money laundering? When I think about money laundering, I think about concealment, concealing the sources of the monies allegedly being laundered. And, and we don't really have that here. And you were right. There wasn't any concealment here. We went to great lengths to point that out. The complaint and all of the allegations in the complaint accused our clients of reinvesting the money that they were allegedly making fraudulently back into the business to make even more money. There was no question where the money was coming from and where it was going. And we really hung our hat on that fact, that there was no effort to conceal the source of money, uh, that the plaintiffs always knew where it, it came from. And you were a big proponent of this argument. That was successful. Why do you think it was so successful here? Because judges are people, and they watch gangster movies also. <laughs> and so if you take the RICO statute all the way back to its origins, the R in RICO stands for racketeer. RICO was passed by Congress as a way to penetrate the practice of organized crime in using purportedly legitimate enterprises to hide, or what's the verb? Launder their money. And even though this judge told us at the beginning of the case, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, that he wasn't going to throw out the case just because this was a commercial contract action that had nothing to do with rackets, I suspected that it was always in his mind that this case had nothing to do with the rackets. And the one thing that even non-RICO specialists understand is what money laundering means. It literally means laundering. It means taking the enterprise from an illegal criminal activity like selling drugs and sinking it into a legitimate activity like a laundromat. And I thought that if we could just explain to the judge that that did not happen here, that's not what was going on. And no matter how many times the plaintiff wanted to repeat the word gangsters and rackets, our clients were lobster salespersons who had lived for 40 years in Maine and know we're not laundering their money, that that would have great sympathy with the judge. And so on that one, you're quite right. It was the absence of us being technical. And I just wanted to explain to the judge that we weren't watching Goodfellas here. Yeah, very, very, very true. And, you know, ultimately, we had a great success here twice. We, we were very successful moving to dismiss these RICO claims on two separate occasions. And, you know, of course, the facts of cases differ. Um, and the application of law to facts are going to differ as well. But I think the things that we've talked about, that the strategies that made our motions successful in this case, can really apply across the board to RICO claims and perhaps to other motions to dismiss as well. Things like focusing the judge on where you are in the case, has discovery taken place, uh, relying on the law of the case, rulings that have already been made, and then focusing on the underlying elements of the racketeering acts. Those strategies can be useful in many, many cases and we certainly benefited from utilizing them here. 
Matt, I, I've had a wonderful time talking to you about this case, almost as much fun as uh, we've had uh, working on the case together. Um, I, I want to thank everyone for joining us here. And Matt, I really want to thank you for joining me to, to talk about this case, which is near and dear to, to both of our hearts. It's always fun to talk to you, and it's especially fun in the dead of a northeastern winter to think about pulling lobsters out of uh, the traps in the beautiful state of Maine. So thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, join us. I hope everyone gets some use out of it. Cal, will talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And thank you to our listeners. For more information about how we can help you, visit the litigation section of Troutman.com. You can subscribe and listen to other Troutman Pepper podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and stay safe. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.